self-care from the sermon series 2020 discerning god's will in the new decade spoken by pastor doug cho they gave me the privilege of closing out this sermon series 2020 discerning god's will for the new decade and they gave me the last topic which is self-care discerning self-care for the new decade And when I got this topic, my heart was really confused. Really confused. Because I felt like it was a very abstract topic, you know, like self-care. I felt like we spoke on more concrete topics in the past few sermons, right? We spoke on our finances. And Pastor Dan spoke on how we need to invest on what will last in eternity. Because when we go to glory, we all end up with zero Mm. Pastor Peter spoke on marriage and how marriage is such a special union. It's so special that marriage should be a sign and a wonder to those around you. It's not meant to be this insular thing just for you and your spouse, but it's meant to bless God and the community. That's what marriage is for. Last week, Pastor Sunita spoke on contentment in the framework of singleness. And I heard from some of you that because you're married, you missed that sermon. I highly suggest that you listen to it once more. There's a word there for everyone in it. And for those of my single brother and sisters that are here, I have to say this. If you are not content with your singleness, consider it God's blessing on your life that you're not married. Listen to it, please. So discerning self-care for the decade discerning, having good judgment on self-care, biblical self-care, right? These are all things I kind of mold about in my head and I kind of struggled with because self-care is so broad. And then I got frustrated because they gave this to me and I was like, you could do a sermon series on self-care, self-care in your relationships, self-care in the workplace, saying no as self-care to create boundaries. I was like, oh my goodness, where do I go with this? And so as I thought about it, my mind jumped to Sabbath in self-care, right? We talk about Sabbath here at our church a lot. And the reason why we talk about it a lot is because many of us here struggle to take Sabbath. I would say the majority of us in this room struggle with Sabbath. And it kind of makes sense, right? We're on the Northeast. We live near New York City. Most of us in this room are workaholics, right? And we tend to have goals that we perpetuate for ourselves in our careers that continue to elude us as years go by. I mean, I was there. I've been there. I did the 80-hour weeks in Manhattan. I lived that life. I was kind of proud to do it. But you kind of feel like it wears at your soul just a little bit, right? Just a little bit. So Sabbath. All right, my mind kind of lands on Sabbath. What is Sabbath? This term Sabbath. Well, the word Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, and that means to cease, right? Everyone say that with me, to cease, to cease, cease. just like God the Father ceased working on the seventh day. So this is what I hear from the congregation about their ceasing or their Sabbath. What do they look like? They look like massages, spa days at Sojo, day trips, Netflix, shopping sprees, 
Netflix, baking, video games, and Netflix. This is definitely ceasing, right? There is an act of ceasing in work there, but it's not Sabbath. See, on the other hand, there's also, also those of us who cease to do the work, but we don't stop thinking about the work. If you're anything like me, this is you. This is ceasing, but it is not Sabbath. I'm going to share with you from Deuteronomy 5 real quick. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither of you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you are slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. The context of Sabbath is that the Israelites were slaves to Egypt for hundreds of years. So what God did is he brought them out with his mighty hand and he institutes this fourth commandment to them in order for them to live in a way that they remember they are no longer slaves. They are no longer slaves to their oppressors and to remember that they have a God who rescues them. They are no longer slaves to their oppressors and they have a God that rescues them. Just as we are to live into Sabbath in that same way, we are no longer slaves to sin and death and we have a God in heaven who rescues us as God's people. The critical piece of Sabbath is to keep it holy by remembering the one. Rabbi Hanina Isaac, he, he says this about Sabbath. The Sabbath is the incomplete form of the world to come. The Sabbath is the incomplete form of the world to come. This is kingdom language if this is something that kind of resonates with you. We are called to live in such a way that we experience a little portion of heaven on our Sabbath. Your Sabbath should help you to commune with God better. You're supposed to live into worship and reverence on your Sabbath. And that's why the seventh day, the seventh day of creation is actually the climax of that story. Not when light is made, not when man is made, The seventh day is the climax when God ceases to work because it is when he stops to be with creation and creation stops to be with God. That is why that day is holy. That's why that day is holy. If you were to go to Israel, there's a very real and tangible picture of what Sabbath looks like. Around 2 p.m., stores start to close. And you see people rushing home to be with friends and family. They gather together and they eat a meal together. They worship and celebrate together. They light candles in reverence to God. They bless their children. They make love to their their spouses. That is Sabbath. It is a little portion of the incomplete form of the world to come. And so Sabbath and self-care, not the same thing, right? 
I believe Sabbath is under this umbrella of self-care. But we're going to use Sabbath as, as a concept to be our basis for what we're going to talk about today. Because if Sabbath is the basis for our self-care, then many of us need to change the way our self-care looks like. So how do I discern if my self-care is good? It is when your self-care is for the glory of God. It is when your self-care is for the glory of God. So we're going to look at Mark 6 and some events that happened throughout that text. And these are not all the ways in which we can self-care better, but here are four. The first is your self-care is for the glory of God when we reinforce our kingdom identity. When we reinforce our kingdom identity. Mark 6, 1 through 6. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at Jesus. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there. Jesus could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Jesus returns to his hometown and preaches about all these miracles and signs and wonders that he had been doing in his ministry. And the response of the people that grew up with him. I know you. You're, you're the kid of that guy, right? Of that carpenter guy. What are you doing? Since, since when did you preach the word like this? Who are you to teach me? See, this, if anything, tells us that when you looked at Jesus, there's nothing special about him. There was nothing grandiose about his stature. There was nothing super charismatic about the way he walked about and he spoke. It was not his physical look, but it was the message that he brought with him that drew crowds to him. And so they asked him, what miracles could the hands of such a man produce when they had done such lowly work with stones and wood before? What miracles could you have possibly done if that was your upbringing? Who are you to teach me? And because they cannot see beyond this, they miss out on God. How many of us have missed out on God because we cannot get over someone's background? How many of us have missed out on God because we can't get over our own background? We have placed our identity in far too many shaky foundations. Our occupation, our education, our income, our relationship status. Shaky foundations to identify who we are, where we stand before people. Comparing, judging, criticizing. 
Why? Why? What I love the most about the humanity of Christ is that this is a man. This is a man who was born to be a manual laborer, right? Like text says, uh, his father was, it's translated as carpenter. He probably worked with a lot of stones, right? Built houses, built things. This was a man who was not elevated in that society. This was a man who was born in a barn with animals. This was a man whose mother had a lot of rumors going about her because people weren't sure who his father was. This man houses, this man is the son of God. This man. This man's body, his hands, it's these hands that heal people when he touches them. That man. It's his tongue, his physical tongue that speaks out to storms and quiets them, that speaks out to the devil and silences him. It's this body, this humble body that came from humble beginnings that bleeds for the salvation of all of man. That is the humanity of Christ. So if you're asking yourself today, how can someone like me possibly bring God glory? You can self-care yourself enough to believe that you are chosen by God, that you have been sealed with his Holy Spirit, that he has chosen you as his own. You are not your own. He has called you as his own to be his temple, to reside in you to move in you, that your identity is based not on the things that you do or that you've done or will do, that your identity is based on a God who resides in you, moves for you, speaks for you, goes before you, goes with you, and continues to claim you over and over again. That is God in you, and that is who we are as a people. Any curse is broken forever. Any lack in your life is not a lack, but rather is a testament to God's glory and power. Amen? For those of you who might dismiss someone because they're too young, too old, not educated enough, maybe for the color of their skin, maybe because they're a woman. I highly suggest you get humble before you miss out on God. Our second point, self-care is for the glory of God when self-care is serving the kingdom. Self-care is for the glory of God when self-care is serving the kingdom. Mark 6, 7 to 13. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the 12 to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except the staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. 
Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Jesus sends out his disciples and they go off, not because they're special people, not because they have anything crazy about them, but because God is with them. And they go out and they do kingdom work. And we see here, it is not their own ministry that they're starting, but rather an extension of Jesus Christ's ministry in them. So you might say, isn't self-care about resting though? Isn't self-care about saying no to things? I mean, yes, some of us here need to do that. Some of us here need to slow down and stop saying yes to everything, create healthy boundaries. However, if you don't even serve God's church on a consistent basis, you're not one of those people. I'll ask this. Does self-care mean that the body of Christ stops being the body of Christ? 1 Corinthians 12 draws us a picture of God's people forming a body. We are all gifted in different ways. The head is the head, the hand is the hand. The eye needs the hand just as the hand needs the eye. But what happens when a perfectly healthy muscle ceases to function? What happens when a perfectly healthy muscle ceases to function? It atrophies. Have you ever someone, seen someone tear their um, Achilles? What happens to their calf? Shrinks down. Your muscles degenerate. They waste away when they don't function. See, being in the body is not just about being part of the body. It's about functioning as a body. Our pastor, Ansi said something that I thought was just so good. She asks, what if a healthy heart just stopped functioning? You know, nothing happened to it. Nothing's wrong with it. It just stopped functioning. Or maybe it just stopped functioning here and there. That's called cardiac arrest. You die. So, I want to challenge you. If you are not serving the body, what part of the body are you? There is a shortage of volunteers at this church. I mean, Catrice just came up here and she asked for a call for worship leaders. For piano players, I know many of you have taken piano lessons. <laughs> it's true. There is a massive shortage of volunteers on the production team. Massive. There is a shortage of volunteers in the youth ministry. For your children, your kids. There's a shortage of people on the setup ministry, the breakdown ministry. We need more homes to host small groups in. I promise you, if you open up your home, I will fill that home with people. <laughs> when does God's body stop being the body? Faith is more than just 
coming in on a Sunday, even though this is important, this is wonderful for us to commune together, be together, faith is about living together as a body, moving, being God's hands and feet, going out. We are called to heal the sick, to set the captives free, to make disciples of the nations for the glory of one. If that is what you are called to, then serving is not a burden. It's a deep privilege and honor. I hope that there's someone in your life that you know, that you have befriended. Maybe it's someone in your family. Maybe it's just someone that you work with. I hope that if this person does not know Jesus, that your heart aches for them, that your heart is desperate for them to know God. That the thought, that the idea of them coming to your church and being baptized would make you want to celebrate more than any Super Bowl. I think I hit that point. Next one. Self-care is for the glory of God when we grieve properly. When we grieve properly. So um, this scene, John the Baptist had been speaking out on Herod's relationship with his wife because he had divorced. So Herod divorced his previous wife to marry his brother's wife. It's really weird, right? So, and they're both named Herod. So King Herod divorces his wife to marry dead King Herod's wife, Herodias. Right, it's just very, a lot of scandal. Scandal, right? Um, Herodias dislikes John so much so that she actually plans for her husband to behead John and have his head delivered to her on a plate. So we're gonna skip to verse 22. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried in to the king with a request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. This is evil. Imagine like a little girl asking for this. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately went, sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This passage is written in such a way it reflects um, Jezebel and Ahab in the Old Testament, or when Esther throws a party for King Xerxes, right? It's those type of vibes. We just see here that the royal court is just so evil. There's an infestation of just pure evil there. The historian Josephus He notes that the mutilated remains of John's body were actually not taken care of. They were thrown out. They were just thrown out east of the prison and they were neglected. So you can only imagine what his disciples felt when they had to go out, look for his body, and then try to bury it properly. In the Matthew account, it actually says that Jesus hears this and he has to go leave somewhere to pray because he's just so grieved by it. See, pain 
and hardship are probably one of the only things that are guaranteed in this world. And funny enough, although we can acknowledge that, I believe we can safely acknowledge that, many of us have bought into this idea of living our lives to outpace our pain in our past. We just live as fast as we can, as hard as we can, to kind of forget what happened in our past. In fact, we raise our children to ensure that they don't experience any pain, which is reasonable, I understand that, you wanna protect your child. But how much more important for us is it to deal with our pain well? To show our children how to deal with pain well? I mean, many of you here are quite well off, but you're just angry all the time. Aren't you tired of being angry? Aren't you tired of being ashamed or bitter? Doesn't, doesn't that wear on you? We poison ourselves every day. We don't grieve. Self-care is grieving. Self-care is taking the time to lay things to rest properly. Just how John's disciples went to look for their teacher's body and to lay him to rest. Just like how Jesus, when he heard that John was beheaded, went somewhere alone to pray. Just as how Jesus wept before he raised Lazarus from his tomb. Self-care is grieving things properly. There's no shame in it. We bear our souls in these moments because God does a redemptive work in dark places of our lives, of our beings, of our souls, if we allow him to. It's believing that when we finally lay things to rest, God will breathe life into them. That's the testament of God's glory. That's how you testify to God's glory. I know in this room there are broken relationships, broken dreams, broken pasts. What do you need to grieve? And what is stopping you from doing that? Self-care is grieving. And finally, self-care brings glory to God when we pursue holiness. Verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said. It's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. 
They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked, go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to the heavens. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. Disciples come back from this long journey. No money, no extra clothes. They come back, they're tired, they're hungry. And Jesus sees this and he says, let's go to a quiet place and rest, right? Other translations say desolate. So apparently what Jesus wanted them to do was go to some place where they would not be bothered and they could rest, recuperate, restore, etc. But what happens is something quite different from rest. It's that Jesus puts them to work. Hmm. A huge crowd follows these people on their boat. If you can imagine, they're kind of like on a boat and the crowd is running along the shore trying to beat them out to where they're trying to go to. Jesus sees this massive crowd and he has compassion on them. He has pity on these people because they are desperate to hear from them. They're like sheep without a shepherd. So he says, okay, I will teach. And he continues to teach them. The disciples, I'm reading this in such a way where I believe the disciples have not eaten yet. They're hungry, they're tired, and they're like, oh my God, now we have to wait and wait so that we can eat after. And when Jesus is finished, they come up to Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, you're done. Now send them away to the village because it's time to eat. Please send them away. And Jesus looks at them and says, no, you feed them. You do it. Now, I don't know how many of you have tried to feed 5,000 people, right? And like scholars do say that this is 5,000 men. So we don't know how many women were there. We don't know how many children were there, but we're going to use that number, 5,000. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. And so they look at Jesus and they say, how do we feed people with no money? Because they were instructed to have no money on them. And Jesus kind of does this thing where he sets them up for a miracle, right? He kind of like plays them up and just smacks them with it, right? He instructs them, go take an account of how much food there is. And they go about five loaves of bread, two fish. That's nothing. I know some of you can eat five loaves of bread and two fish, right? On your own. So he says, this is perfect. Thank you. He takes this and he goes, now split up these people into groups. So what I imagine here is I see tired disciples yelling at people to sit down in groups of 50 and 100. Frustrated disciples who have no idea what the heck is going on, but just going about because Jesus told them to do it. Discouraged disciples because they had heard of John the Baptist's life and they don't know what to do with that. They come back to Jesus after this is done, after that work. Jesus gives thanks, breaks the bread, and says, now go serve this food to all these people. And I can only imagine the humiliation and the regret to have to take this food and try to feed this many people. Can you imagine? But then, 
as they're waiting, literally waiting tables here, and they go back and forth. Each trip they take, they realize there was more food than they had initially counted in the beginning. Each trip they take, they are realizing there's not only enough food, there is an abundance of food. In fact, there's so much food, there's more food that was left over than food that they had started with. And I can only imagine how loudly their hearts screamed when they realized this. Do you think they worshiped? Do you think they they fell down to the ground in awe of Jesus? I think so. I think so. Luke 9 reads like this. This is right after they feed the 5,000. Once when Jesus was praying in private and the disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others that one of the prophets from long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answers, God's Messiah. This is the first time Peter knows in his heart who Jesus is. Do you think they still felt weary after they served 5,000 people? No. I believe that we have abused the concept of ceasing and turned it into indulging. Ceasing should be an act that creates space for us to encounter God. Ceasing should be an act that creates room and time for us to commune with the living God, to be under his holiness, to experience his presence, the divine. Whatever helps you get there, do it. But it is not to indulge in your own desire. Your self-care should lead you into God's presence and revelation of him. It should get you to know him better. Your Sabbath should be so sweet. Your Sabbath should be the days where you realize, oh man, that is what God has been telling me all this time. Your rest should look like one where your peace is not just you sitting doing nothing. Your peace comes from God. It should be a way for you to experience heaven today. I struggle with doing self-care well. Uh, Identity-wise, I mean, I know I'm redeemed. I know I'm forgiven. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. But, you know, the reality of my life is that I feel like I had spent so much time gambling, fornicating, and indulging so wildly that I don't trust my own voice. I don't trust myself to make decisions for myself anymore. Even being a pastor. I didn't want to be a pastor. I didn't want any of this. Did I feel like I was called to be a pastor? Yes. Do you know how many times I asked Peter if he's sure that I should be a pastor? Like a thousand, right? I I didn't know. It had to be heavily affirmed. 
As a person, I'm highly performance oriented, highly critical of myself. The person I have the least grace for, me. I'm sure many of you can relate to that. One thing I thought I did well was grieving because I thought I had done so much of it, I must be an expert at it now. <clears throat> you know, I grieved my father, my mother's life, my life, my relationships, broken dreams. Last year was particularly hard in terms of family, marriage, I'm a newlywed, right? In church, things were just tough. And on top of that, Pastor Kevin left, right? He was the former executive pastor here. For some reason or another, I was perpetually tired and just off. You know, and he happened to leave at a time where things just kind of went downhill. I woke up every day, and I remember saying to my wife, I think I'm sad. But I wasn't really sad, but I was sad. There was almost like a gloom that was always over me. I couldn't pray, I couldn't sleep, I couldn't get myself to read the Bible. And many of you know that doesn't make a very good pastor. So I just kind of attributed it to, this is a hard season in my life. And it wasn't until I sat down in Chicago this past week with Kevin and I realized something about him. As we sat and we kind of spoke to each other, I remember that he was the person I went to when I was confused. He was my sounding board. He was the person that affirmed me and he was the person that challenged me. He was the person that did my marriage counseling. He was the person that married me to my wife. He was the person that spoke, that talked my wife through her career change. He was the person through the way he lived and interacted taught me about God. And I realized as we spoke, I miss my friend and my pastor. And in fact, I miss him so much that I'm actually terribly lonely. And I wasn't grieving that. What are you dealing with today that is preventing you from experiencing the richness and rest of God's revelation? Ask him. Ask him to show you as he shows me. When I pray now, I say, God, raise people up. Show me. Show me what that means. I had a refreshing conversation with Peter the other day. And, you know, it was the best I had felt in weeks, months. Only because I knew now what I was feeling and I was able to start grieving it. Ask God to show you. Ask God to show you that he resides inside of you. That you're not your own, but that you belong to a king. Then you will recognize that there are desires within you that this world cannot satisfy. You can search all you want, but trust me. Trust me. I did it. You won't find it but it's only when you experience the delight of knowing God and being in his presence that you'll experience real rest and real self-care. Aren't you tired of being tired?
Let's pray together. Take a moment. One of the hardest things to do when you first start praying, actually, and especially if you don't pray a lot, is starting. And if that's you, I challenge you to pray this. God, Realign me to you. Reposition me to you. I feel off. My life looks off. My family is off. My marriage is off. My view of self is off. Realign me to you. Psalm 23, you know, in that passage where it says, he brings me to still waters, he restores my soul. That word restore is actually, the Hebrew says, it's a bringing back. God is bringing you back to him. So pray, God, bring me back to you. Rest in his presence. There ain't no, there's nothing wrong with getting a massage or going out and getting a good workout in or enjoying yourself. But more than that, what God wants you to do is to experience more of him. What does it look like to experience more of him in your family, in your career? in your life. Father, I just thank you for this time and I thank you for your word. Your word is so beautiful because it really does show us how much you care about your people. We call your word the final authority and yet this authority is so intimate. This authority knows its people so well. God, if your people walk out with anything today, it would be that they would be transformed by knowing just a little bit more of you, God. That they would be refreshed in knowing just a little bit more of you, God that they would feel care over themselves because you reveal yourself to them. We love you, Lord. In your name I pray, amen. If you have your communication card, uh, just flip that over, got some next steps. The first is I am committing my life to Jesus for the first time. And if this is you, hallelujah, thank you so much. 
We love that you're with us, that you've joined us, that we could and can share this moment with you. Please go outside those double doors. There's something called the next table. Someone will be there to talk with you, to pray with you, to answer questions. We take that very seriously. The next is, I'm going to fulfill a Sunday ministry role consistently at my church. Some of you are visitors. That's fine. Fulfill a role at your church. But if Metro is your home, dedicate yourself to serving the body, to taking part in the mission of what it is to make disciples of all the nations, to heal the sick, set the captives free. Third, I will spend more time resting in the word of God. You know, we often say at Metro, it doesn't have to be a lot. Read a chapter. Read a few verses. Meditate on that truth. God's word, if we really do believe that God's word is his word, that it comes from God, why wouldn't you? Fourth, I will ask someone close to me to listen to something I need to grieve. Tell them not to speak. Tell them not to give you advice, but to listen. And let yourself hear yourself speak. Fifth, I will read about Hannah in 1 Samuel 1, 1 to 28 for next week. We are going to be starting a series called Unsung Heroes. It's about women in the Bible that we don't really hear about and the incredible things they did. I'm really excited for it. So please definitely check that out. And finally, I would like to display a table representing a country or volunteer to serve on Culture Day on March 29th. Please come to Culture Day. If you've been to our church for a while, you do know and understand Culture Day is a very big deal at our church. It's a way for us to honor the nations, to honor all the parts of the body of Christ, all the different nuances to the image of God in us. Please check that out. There's going to be some great food, but we need you to represent your country.